0: You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care.
1: Today's scripture reading is in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew 21, verses one through 11. In the Pewback Bible, this is on page 826. Again, it's Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you all, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, Glad to be with you. My name is Gary, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, you are with us here today on a day where we are celebrating with Christians around the world and throughout history. What we call the triumphal entry of Jesus. And so, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, the name comes from them waving palm branches and laying palm branches down on the ground. And we're going to talk about that this morning from this passage. Uh, But it really is the doorway into what has historically been called Holy Week. Uh, Holy Week. Uh, It's crazy to think that we're in Holy Week. Easter is this coming Sunday. And that has come fast. I don't know what your spring's been like, but it's crazy. Uh, But Holy Week is a week that we celebrate, and even the word holy is we just set it apart as the people of God. Uh, For a couple thousand years, the people of God have taken time to really set this week apart to remember the last week in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, We remember his entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which we'll talk about today, where he affirmed and confirmed that, yes, I am the king. But throughout the rest of that week, in the last week of his earthly life, he would do things that would challenge the way people thought about his kingship, would challenge their expectations, the kind of king they thought he would be and the kind of kingdom he had come to build. And so throughout this week, we take time to really stop and slow down on this last week of the life of Jesus. It's interesting, you get a a couple paragraphs uh, in a couple of the Gospels that talk about the birth of Jesus. Uh, You get a a good chunk of the four different Gospel accounts that talk about the life and the ministry of Jesus. But over a third of all of the Gospels is focused on this last week of his life. Um, Because in this last week of his life, Jesus was accomplishing something that would change the trajectory of the world. That all of human history would shift because of what Jesus Christ did on this last week. And so this week, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday, his entry into Jerusalem. On Thursday, we'll celebrate what we call Mandi Thursday, which comes from this Latin word mandatum, which just means commandment, where Jesus gives a new commandment to his disciples. On the eve before his crucifixion, he hosts a meal and he serves and he washes their feet. And he says, just as I have loved you, so you all as my followers should love one another. And he gives them this new commandment. We celebrate that on Thursday. On Friday, we celebrate what we call Good Friday, which is a strange name for a day where we celebrate the death of our king. But it's because our king was not killed against his own will. He was actually coming to lay his life down. What happened on that crucifixion moment was Jesus laying down his life to atone for our sins, to wash us, cleanse us, to actually demonstrate for us the Father's love, that the creator of that universe loves you. And that Good Friday, we see this incredible demonstration of sacrificial love as Jesus lays down his life on the cross. We remember on that Saturday the depression and the darkness the disciples felt as they thought that all of their hopes and dreams had been dashed. Experiences that many of us have had as you feel pain in your life and in your story and you wonder, is there any hope? That's what those disciples felt on that Saturday. And we slow down to feel that, to enter into that emotional space, all leading towards Resurrection Sunday. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate this incredible reality that Jesus rose from the dead, not merely confirming who he was, but also beginning the dawn of a whole new age, an age where dead things can be made alive, broken things can be restored, divided things can be reconciled. And we live in a resurrection world where Jesus is alive, he's present. So so what we're praying this week as we slow down and remember these things that we do every single year is we're praying that the Holy Spirit would flood these moments, these traditions, these stories that many of you are familiar with, with new life, that you'd see Jesus, that you'd run to him, that we would come and adore him as our savior and our king. It's, it's crazy to think that almost 2,000 years ago, a man from a little town called Nazareth rode into a little city, roughly 50,000 people, called Jerusalem, on a donkey. Five days later, he'd be betrayed by his friends and abandoned and nailed to a tree. That happened in human history, it just happened. 2,000 years later, men and women and children around the world are celebrating that moment, that week. Men and women and children in Asia, and in Africa, and in Europe, in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, in Central America, in South America, all across North America, in Australia, men and women and children are celebrating this today with us, it's awesome. It's awesome. We get to see how it is that Jesus came, the kind of king that he was and the kind of kingdom he came to build. So we need the Holy Spirit's help. And so let's take a moment, calm our hearts before the presence of God and ask him to work among us right now. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we pause right now and give attention to you, our King, our Savior, the one who came into human history to... Demonstrate the Father's love to redeem, to restore, to transform the world. Now We have considered and been considering your life and your ministry, your approachability, your kindness, but also your wisdom, your strength and your power. And I pray this week you would awaken us to the beauty of these truths. For those that have been aware of these stories and these realities and have celebrated them and have traditions around them, I pray that these traditions, these rituals, these stories would take new life this year for us. For those that have maybe been familiar or vaguely familiar or maybe not that familiar, maybe people that are new to Christianity, I pray that, that this image of you as the Savior King, the humble, approachable Savior King, would bring transformation into their life. That it would be like their whole life has been changed as they consider who you are and what you came to do, your love for them and your power in the world. So help us to see you and to rejoice and to celebrate and to worship you as your people we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, We are just gonna dive right in today. We are looking at Matthew chapter 21. If you've been with us uh, for the past several months, uh, you know we're working our way slowly through the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll know that we were kind of just finishing chapter 17, and we are now jumping forward, just a couple chapters. And so we'll get here back in our Matthew series in two or three years, Uh, you know, it depends on how long we take, but uh, we wanna pay attention to this particular scene uh, because of, of what it means for us as the people of God. Uh, there Throughout this story in Matthew, Jesus has been going around teaching this good news that the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is paying attention to the world. He hears the broken cry of the world. He sees the world as it is, and he has intervened in human history. He has sent his own son to be the king through which he would restore all things. And Jesus came in a, in a form and in a fashion that nobody would have expected. He came to an impoverished family. He was born of a virgin. He had a very kind of low-key, kind of under-the-radar childhood. He came onto the scene now. has been on the scene for roughly three years, but has come outside of the sort of traditional way that people were trained in the religious systems in Israel. And so he's kind of come in a way that people didn't expect. And that's kind of forced people to kind of confront their expectations. They see things about he. The things, the things he's saying, the things he's doing, the healing, the miracle, the way he's teaching, the way he's operating. And something about him is like, this might be the Messiah, the king we've been waiting for. That God had promised to the people of Israel long before that would bring redemption and restoration, that would establish his kingdom, that would restore, restore them to their place of glory and prominence, that would be a kingdom, and instead of being under the thumb of empire after empire, their kingdom would be a light to the nations, and people would come and get to know their God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, Yahweh himself, that people would become worshippers of Yahweh, and that was so trampled on by all of these nations, they were waiting for a king to bring restoration. And they began to see Jesus and hear his teaching and watch his action and see his power and his healing and his love and think maybe he's the king. But Jesus would do things and say things that would make them question and wonder. And so as time went on, more and more people thought this might just be the king, but Jesus has kept everything under wraps. In fact, in the most clear moments that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where his disciples finally realized, yes, he's the king, he tells them explicitly, don't tell everybody. The momentum is growing, the crowds are growing, the sort of buzz around the life and ministry of Jesus has been spreading, that now he's beginning to withdraw. He's avoided Jerusalem for most of his ministry life. And all of that kind of moment kind of boils down to where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus finally sets his sight on Jerusalem and starts making his way to Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick up here in Matthew chapter 21 is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in a really climactic moment. Look with me, Matthew 21, verse 1. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of, his, two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Uh, in this moment... Uh, Jesus has kind of been on this journey. He's heading towards Jerusalem. Imagine with him his 12 disciples, but also a a larger entourage of people that have just been staying near to Jesus. Some of them are close friends and followers. Some of them are crowds that have come and gone at different points. But as kind of the news that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem is spreading, more and more people are interested. And there's a few reasons why. Um, One is the kind of stories about Jesus and his healing has been attracting a lot of crowds. He's healed people from sickness and skin disease. He's raised a woman's daughter from apparent death, raised a centurion's son. He has brought healing to people who couldn't walk. He's healed people who couldn't see. He raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. All these stories are moving. There's a time where he met, uh, fed 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people in one setting. Another time where he fed 4,000 men, several thousand people in one sitting. And all all of these kind of stories are spreading and spreading, and people are like, is he the king? Is he the king? But he has refrained from being explicit and honest and direct about his identity. He's kept it quiet, and now he's heading towards Jerusalem. He's been teaching things that felt different. He taught not just like unpacking old things, but somehow bringing a new kind of authority to the old things, as if all those old things are coming to their fulfillment in this moment, in his life, in this community. And it was compelling People were coming near to him, and the the kind of people that were coming near to him were surprising. It was the marginalized, the poor, the ostracized, the sick, and the hurting. And in the middle of all of that, people from Jerusalem would come, and, and they'd catch wind of this Jesus, who might be this Messiah. We don't know. We need to check him out. He's not from our crew. And they'd come, and these tensions were mounting. And as those tensions mounted, Jesus would continue to kind of like slide out of these tense moments as if he wasn't yet ready for that conflict. He wasn't ready for that conflict to come to a head. And so when he's heading towards Jerusalem, you feel the anticipation is thick. The suspense is thick. It's like, you know, you feel the rising action. Like, oh man, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be a big deal. What makes it a big deal on top of just the kind of normal expectation that was kind of growing around Jesus was the time in history and of the year in which this moment happened. This is happening at the beginning of what's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The Festival of Unleavened Bread was a week-long festival where not just the people in Jerusalem, but Israelites from all over the region would kind of go through a pilgrimage to do a week-long festival to celebrate the moment where God had rescued them out of bondage in Egypt and redeemed them from their captivity and the death and destruction that they faced in Egypt. This week-long festival will culminate in Passover And in the Passover, it's this feast where they celebrate this lamb as they remember that God rescued them from Egypt through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, redeeming them from captivity, showing forgiveness from judgment. And they would consider this that whole week. And so a town of roughly 50,000 people would swell to around 200,000 people, quadrupling in size in a matter of days. And so just imagine... Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, roughly 150,000 people making their way steadily towards Jerusalem on this path. The path that Jesus is taking is a normal path where all of the Jews from the region of Galilee would be making their way down at the right time at the same time. And so you have the 12 followers of Jesus, the 12 disciples, his other crowd, but also a lot of people around, a lot of people paying attention. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. You just feel the buzz. You feel the anticipation. It's thick. It's thick. It's thick, like if this was in a movie, you know, like the music's going to get really dramatic, you know, you're going to the cinematography, going to be real intense and thoughtful. You just feel this moment. Something is about to happen. And so Jesus comes in the traditional route over the Mount of Olives, he's going to go down through the Garden of Gethsemane and into the city. And as he crests over the Mount of Olives, just on the outside of the city, he tells two of his disciples to go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me and if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord needs them and he will send them at once now one of the reasons i love matthew's telling of this story is because of this line here because it's a it's a funny scene you have to like put yourself in that moment You feel the thick anticipation. You feel like uh, all of the kind of like mounting excitement. There's a buzz. You crest over the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus says to a couple of the disciples, I want you to go get me a donkey and a colt. I want you to bring them to me. And we'll talk about the significance of that. But what he says is you're going to go into a village and you're just going to find them there. And when you find them there, just take them. And I'm just like, you know, for the disciples of Jesus, like pretty familiar with the Old Testament, it's like, there's a commandment about that. It's like, thou shalt not steal. Uh, and how do we do that? And Jesus is like, no big deal. So if somebody asks you, what are you doing? Taking my donkeys. <laughs> just tell them the Lord needs it. And they'll be like, fine, sounds good, you know? We've, we've talked about this before, but like, don't try that. Just generally speaking, like if you need a car, and you're like, I need a car. That person's car is warming up in front of their house. I like that car. I could use that car. Uh, and you just go and get in it. And if they're like, hey, neighbor, what are you doing taking my car? You're like, the Lord needs it. And they'll be like, nope, no problem. Sounds good. Take it. It's yours. Like, you feel it's like, is this really going to happen? It's like, what, what is happening in here? Because it's a bizarre scene. Uh, and, uh, and it's really significant. It's really significant. One, it, Jesus, it's the only time he's going to call himself, at least in the gospel of Matthew, The Lord. Like, wait, who needs it? The Lord needs it. He's embracing something here and stating something with a degree of clarity that he has not said with this kind of clarity. And you feel the the, the swell of this, that as they go into this space, he has this sovereign power and the sovereign right to all things. The donkey is his donkey. The city is his city. The world is his, his world. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And when they speak this, it's going to be given to him. It's coming to this moment. Now, what's more significant about this moment is there was wrapped up in the kind of uh, concept of the arrival of a Messiah, all of these prophetic hopes. And one of those prophetic hopes came from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which is quoted here by Matthew. So Matthew talks about this historical moment, this thing that happened, and to help you understand the significance of the moment, he gives a quote. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. The Israelites would have known this. They knew that David came into Jerusalem on a donkey. They knew that Solomon and his coronation came into Jerusalem on a donkey. They knew the prophecy in Zechariah that their coming messianic king would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so when Jesus says, go get me a donkey, they're saying, game on. Like this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for you to stop this secrecy stuff and don't tell anybody. Like, the crowds are here. It's the festival of unleavened bread. There's a huge buzz. There's anticipation. There's this conflict that's rising. And Jesus is like, Get the donkey, I'm the king. And they're like, Game on. Now, Jesus has already said that he's going to be going into Jerusalem. He's already said that he's the messianic king. He's made that clear. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But he's told them to keep it quiet. It seems in this moment, Jesus is saying, hey, the secrecy is done. I am telling the world who I am. I'm gonna make it really clear exactly who I am. And they knew in that Zechariah prophecy, behold, your king is coming. All these prophetic hopes from Isaiah and Zechariah are coming to this moment, and the people... The followers of Jesus are feeling like, okay, he's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to build this crowd. There's so many people around. They're going to get it. We're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to drive them out. We're going to get this thing done. He's going to establish his throne, take the kingdom. This is what we've been waiting for. They understood he was the king, but they did not understand what kind of king he was. They understood he had come to save them, but they didn't understand from what he had come to save them. They understood something about his identity, but they did not understand the kind of kingdom he was coming to build. And so in this moment, you, you feel the kind of kind of growing, rising action. They, they go and they get the donkey and they bring it and they take their cloak and their clothes and they hang them over the donkey like a saddle and Jesus gets on the donkey and we even learn from other uh, gospel writers. He sits sideways on the donkey and he rides in. The crowd knows exactly what this means. They know it means he is the Christ, the anointed one. The king we've been waiting for. They know it. They get it, and they're right. They're right. And they celebrate, and they should. And they sing, and they shout, and they praise him, and they lay their clothes on the ground, and wave palm branches, and lay the palm branches on the ground, and they should. In fact, Jesus embraces all of it as appropriate and fitting, because he is the king, and he is the savior. But he's not the kind of king, nor the kind of savior. That they expected. And so what I want to do is just pay attention to a few moments in this scene where Jesus is going to be again flipping in different ways upside down what they expected from their king and what they expected from their savior. In fact, the rest of Holy Week, if you walk through in all of the gospels, it is it is moment by moment, every word, every action is full of these profound meetings that were just flipping their expectations on their head over and over and over. Most most emphatically when he took up his throne, not in a throne room, but on a cross, that his victory is going to come in a way that they never would have expected. So we're going to pay attention to, uh, as Matthew unpacks it, the things he's highlighting. The first thing I want us to see is that this king is a humble king who has come for a hurting and a weary world. He's a humble king who's come for a hurting and a weary world. You have to ask the question, why a donkey. Why did David come in on a donkey? Why did Solomon come on a donkey? Why is this king coming in on a donkey? What kings come in on historically is war horses or stallions, right? Like, or if you're a Persian king, you're coming in on an elephant or something, right? Or if you're a creative, you know, Enneagram four king, it's going to be like a Siberian tiger, you know, like something outside the box. Cool. Majestic, like something that's just like, whoa, he's awesome. Not a donkey. Why a donkey? That feels kind of lame. It is a kind of lame thing for a king to ride in on. That's, that's the point. In fact, in the Zechariah prophecy, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He doesn't come in on a war horse. He doesn't come in with pomp and pride to kind of elevate himself, and make everybody think he's awesome. He doesn't come in with a kind of military entourage that's there to protect him and make sure he's safe. He comes in accessible, Vulnerable, approachable, inviting. In fact, this word, humble, a mountain on a donkey, that same Greek word that's used here is the same word that's used in Matthew 11:28, 28, where Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and weighed down by the pain of life. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My, my yoke, my way of life, it's, it's easy. It's light. It's light. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That word gentle is this word here. Gentle. That he's approachable. He hasn't come to be a king to be protected by all of his people. He hasn't come to be a king to bring his kingdom by force. He's come with this approachability. In fact, it's been the MO of his ministry from the beginning that the people that are flocking to Jesus are the people that have felt ostracized, marginalized, stigmatized, the people that are feeling impoverished and broken and sick, the people in desperate need, the people that their systems of society will push to the edges. Jesus was saying, come to me, come to me. That he's the kind of king that does not come and say, get your stuff together. If you wanna be a part of my group, I need the strongest and the best. He says, in your brokenness, in your weariness, in your pain, in your confusion, you can come to me. He is an approachable king that area in your heart where you feel like, if people knew this about me, if people knew this about me, they would never want to be friends with me. If people saw my insecurity, and how afraid I feel, and how that word or that moment so like stressed me out, if people saw or knew about my past and the stuff that I did a decade ago or the stuff I did last night, they would not want me in this space. If people knew the kind of like, insecurities I feel and doubts I feel around my faith and how I show up that small group and I'm really struggling and I'm really questioning and I'm really wondering. If people knew how depressed I feel internally, I keep showing up with sm- but if people knew they would never want to be around me. Jesus is not like that. He's not like that. He is so approachable. He's so inviting. He does know. He does see. And he has come in a posture in a way that's saying come, come on. I'm not like that. I'm not like the other kings. I'm not like the systems of this world. I'm not like the societies that stack people up and weigh people against each other based on their achievements or lack thereof. You can come to me. He's a humble, approachable, accessible king that's inviting right now, you right now, in your weariness, in your pain, and the brokenness, that part of you that you feel like most of me can show up here, but if people knew that part of me, Jesus saying, I know that, and I'm welcoming you. I love his gentleness. I love that we have a gentle king, a humble king, a lowly king. That's who he is. It's the kind of king he came to be. It's not what they expected. They expected war, and Jesus invited the most broken, the most needy, the most vulnerable to draw near to him. Second thing that he flips on his head that so he came to be a savior king but not the kind of savior king they expected he came to be a savior king for a sinful and a broken world broken we can deal with broken we feel broken we feel in your life in your story broken you feel with your family broken you can feel in our society in our city broken you can see all around the world the underneath that brokenness where did it come from where did it come from The people of Israel knew he was coming to save them, but he didn't understand what he was coming to save them from. Look with me at the passage. Here's what it says. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, most of the crowd understood what was happening, so they spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches. We learn from, like, the Gospel of John, these are palm branches, which were symbols of messianic identity, like, like Jewish nationalism. They're, like, waving flags. They're laying these on the ground. There's a growing crowd, and look at what it says. It says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! They're shouting, they're singing, they're taking their cloaks and their coats and laying them on the ground, rolling out the red carpet, they're cutting off branches, waving flags. Like this is the moment. Our King has come and he's come to save us. And they are singing exactly what they should sing. They picked the right psalm. They sang from Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna! What is Hosanna? Hosanna is in our English language is what's called a transliteration of a Greek word here, which is Hosanna. Transliteration just means we didn't translate it; we just reframed it with English phonetics. And that Greek word Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase, Hosia na, Hosia save us Na, please. Please, Lord, save us, please. And they're pulling this straight from Psalm 118, verse 25, where they're talking about the pain and the brokenness within Israel, and they cry out to the Lord, Lord, please save us, please. Please, Lord, save us. Bring bring deliverance. Bring transformation. Redeem, restore, deliver us. And they would cry out and cry out. That's Psalm 118, verse 25. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like the Lord sees you as you cry for deliverance, and he meets you, and he's sending one to come to bring that salvation. So that phrase came not just to be a cry for salvation, but a cry that God sees us and has sent to salvation. He has sent us his saving king, his savior king. And so when they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they get it. He is the savior that they've been waiting for. They get it. But what they think he came to do is not exactly what he came to do. The most pressing issue on their mind was the fact that they were under the thumb of empire after empire, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans, and they could not find a king to bring deliverance from their painful circumstances. What they did not understand or want to take honestly is the sin in their life that had led them into that experience of pain and judgment. Now that's tricky, and there's a ton of nuance, so hear, hear me closely. God cares about the pain in your life. He cares about the difficult circumstances we face, and when Jesus came into the world, he was a demonstration of God's care, God's sympathy. They'd see people as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he would, came into the world to show them the compassion of their God, but the way he is most foundationally most fundamentally dealing with that hard circumstance is by dealing with the root cause and the root cause of all of the brokenness in the world is us it's humanity where did this brokenness come from people like me and you our rebellion against the creator Our rebellion against his reign, against his wisdom, our running from his presence, our attempts to build our own kind of kingdom, our own kind of way, rejecting his value system and saying, no, my value system is going to be about me and about mine, and I'm going to carve out my own path to joy in my own way, and that might hurt others, and it might create cities and systems that hurt others, and that's not my business. I'm going to build my own kingdom, and we bring brokenness into this world, not just into our own hearts and into our own lives and into our relationships, into the creation itself. Even disease, even pandemic is a part of a curse on the world that was brought through our sin against God. And that's something that the world does not want to talk about. But when you ignore the root problem to the brokenness in the world, you will miss the the beautiful solution. That Jesus Christ came into this world, not first and foremost, to redeem us from our hard circumstances, but first and foremost to redeem us from our hard hearts. And so when we cry, save us, we pray, Lord. He cares about your circumstances. He cares about, and you you can cry out for deliverance. Most fundamentally, though, he's come to save us from the sin in our own hearts, that we should be crying, Lord, save me from my selfish heart. Lord, save me from my greed and my desire for more and more and more. It's insatiable save me. Save me from my fragile ego that feels hurt and defensive when things don't go the way I want them to or I feel hurt in some way. Save me from my bitter and angry heart towards other people that's like a thorn bush that's choking out my joy. Save me from my covetousness. Save me from my self-righteousness where I just feel better than everybody else all the time and look down on others. Save me from my callous heart. Save me from my cynicism where I hear stuff like this and I just kind of blow it off because I just don't care, I've heard it before. Save me, save me, save me. Oh, oh, and Jesus came to save us. He came to be a savior for a sinful and a broken world. He does care about the brokenness. He cares about the pain. He cares about the circumstances. And the path towards redemption of all things comes through the redemption of the human heart and the transformation of lives as we turn to him as our savior, one from whom we need mercy and grace, and he came to be that. Not in this condescending way, in this condemning way, but in this inviting way, saying, come to me with your guilt. Come to me with your shame. I've watched you carry that for decades. Feel shame, you've hidden that part from me. You don't need to hide it from me. I came to save you from that, to forgive you of that, to cleanse you of that. You don't have to pretend you're better than other people. You don't have to hide those parts of yourself. Come to me. I am your Savior King who's come to save you from your sin, to transform your life and to change you by grace and through love. He has come to be the Savior King that the world needs, that you and I need. Third thing we see in this passage that I just want to pay attention to is that he did come to be a king, and he came to be a reigning king, a reigning king. Look with me at what he says or what the crowds say in this passage. I think it's a really interesting detail. It says, the crowds came out shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's that son of David line that doesn't show up in Psalm 118. It's like, why are they saying son of David? Why are they saying that? Because they understood that if he is the Christ, if he's riding on a donkey, and if he's coming into Jerusalem in this moment, and if he really is this kind of one that we've been expecting, that means he's the one that was promised that would be an offspring of David. And they knew that there was a huge expectation that a offspring of david would come and establish a new kind of kingdom not a kingdom that would kind of rise for a while and fall when the next global superpower came it would be a kingdom that would reign forever and ever and ever that jesus came to be a reigning king for a chaotic and anxious world he is the reigning king that we need in the midst of a chaotic and anxious world That this king would come, and he wouldn't just kind of rule for a little while and hand it off to the next people. He would establish his kingdom through his death on the cross. He would be raised from the dead and would take a throne and a seat where he has all authority in the heaven and on the earth, in the spiritual realm and in the earthly realm, and he would reign forever and ever and ever. And so we gather right now today, right now today, under the reign of a king who is in absolute control. When we face pandemics that upend our lives and change the world, when we face kind of broken and spiraling economies, when you face civil injustice and social injustice in the world and political divisions, when you feel relationships ripping and division all around us, when you feel chaos in your family and you feel confusion in your life, when you go to work and you feel like, man, I don't understand what's happening, I feel a little bit confused about what it's calling me to do in my life, and when you go to these situations with your friends and you feel difficulty and you feel so bewildered, when you think about the kind of place that your family is in and you feel, man, I just don't know what side's up, what side's down, when it feels out of control, you feel disoriented, there is a king who reigns on the throne. He's on the throne. Right now, he's on the throne. He sees you. He's got it. He's in control. He's not kind of left the seat. He is reigning Now, in the midst of the chaos in this world and the anxiety that we face as we live in that chaotic moment, there's one who sits on a throne in absolute control and we have an invitation to trust him. His ways are not always our ways. His wisdom doesn't always make sense to us, but he sits on the throne. And you can find joy and you can find peace in the midst of the most chaotic moments when you understand there's a king. My king is on the throne, my king loves me. My king is approachable and I can come to him. You can find a kind of peace and a kind of joy that's indestructible, that's unshakable. When you live in a shakable world and all the shakable things are shaking, there's a king whose reign is unshakable. And he's building his kingdom and he's reconciling people to his grace and he's establishing it and it will not fail. We just read about it in the assurance of pardon. From this time forth and forevermore, he reigns. That's the kingdom, that's the government. That's the rule that he has over the world and that gives peace and joy in the midst of a chaotic and anxious world. It's interesting to me, the the palm branches in this passage, as the people gather and they're waving all these palm branches and they're singing Hosanna, they get it right, but they're also anticipating a future. In Revelation chapter seven, there's a moment where John, who's one of these disciples here in this moment, pictures a scene where people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are gathering around Jesus, where Jesus has come again to finally and fully establish his kingdom. He says they're going to be waving palm branches. Like this moment, the arrival of the king, the kingdom has come to its full fruition, its culminating moment, all things new. And so he's not just a reigning king in a chaotic and an anxious world. He's also a returning king for a waiting world. And so we celebrate this week when we celebrate the death of Jesus. We remember his love for us his sacrifice for our sins. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that he's creating new life and transforming the world through his resurrection power. We also wait. We wait. We wait with patience. We wait with endurance that he's coming again. All things will be made new. Sin will be no more. Division, no more. Death, no more. The dead will rise, and we will sing Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together.